1: All right, it's that time, Scott. Yes, sir. Sour Hour episode number six. Yeah. Uh, five? Five? I think six. it's five. I think it's six. Really? Yeah. i uh, look it up after bet? the show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a bet? Uh, what should we bet? Uh, God, I really think it's five. I'll bet you five bucks. Okay. On camera, shake. You're on. Wait, Bevo, does this camera work?
2: They're not paying attention. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yes.
1: <laughs> oh, it does work. Uh-huh. Okay. So everyone is a witness to that. Good. Uh, Welcome. You sound pretty certain. Yeah. (laughs) You're the type of guy that doesn't make bets unless you are just
2: uh, 100% I'm money in the bank.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Welcome to the Sour Hour. Uh, You all witnessed some illegal activity live on uh, brewingnetwork.com slash TV. My name's Jay Goodwin. Uh, We're here in uh, downtown Concord at the world headquarters of the Brewing Network in Studio ADD. Beautiful day. And uh, I'm really actually excited. The weather's good because uh, this Saturday we're going to be out here for the Winter Brews Festival uh, put on by the Brewing Network. Uh, we'll be here pouring beer from the Rare Barrel, so hopefully uh, a lot of you guys listening will be traveling out for that festival, and it's pretty exciting. You guys all, all ready to go, Scott?
3: No. Good. Good.
1: well it's like two days away so
2: yeah i've got plenty of time
1: yeah plenty of time but you know
2: everything kind of comes together in the last second justin doesn't sleep for about uh 72 hours leading up to it Uh, and then it all goes off without a hitch
1: awesome well yeah i've been to a couple of them before and uh i really highly recommend it for everyone out there who hasn't been or who's trying to get an excuse to come out here maybe a little short notice now but hey you know what just do it hop on a plane a few tickets left
2: I mean, what is Southwest going to run you for a flight, no matter where you're coming from? A couple hundred bucks? Something I mean, like that. I what, mean, what's, what's stopping you?
1: Yeah. I mean, what's the cost of fulfilling your lifelong dream of meeting Scott in person?
2: Exa- well, <laughs> okay, you just ruined all the last second ticket sales.
1: <laughs> well, now they're sold out because I just sold <laughs> it true. so well oh. right there. But yeah, happy to be here. Uh, we have no guest tonight uh, because uh, we have a huge surplus of questions and Scott and I were chatting before the show. It's pretty funny because we had all these questions and they were building up and we just couldn't get to as many during all these uh, shows we had guests on. So, hey, let's knock a bunch out during a Q&A show. And then what happened when we promoted the show today, Scott? Uh, I would say
2: about 15-ish emails came in uh, with more questions when people saw oh, they're doing, which God love y'all, you know, hey, they're doing a Q&A. And so let me send in my question. And now we'll just have to have another Q&A for the uh, current backlog.
1: Yeah, no problem with that. So that'll be a lot of fun. And, you know, if you want to jump in and add to those questions, you can call us tonight, 888-401-BEER. Join us in the chat. We'll be kind of mixing in uh, questions at Scott's discretion from email, from people calling in, joining in the chat. So, yeah, let's talk sour beer. One kind of special thing about the questions we're going to answer on tonight's show and uh, just the show overall going forward is that, we actually got our first sponsor, yes. which is really exciting. Yes, it means we're not going to be canceled, which is great.
2: Well, well I mean, he's not exactly. Uh, it's it's not New Belgium.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, so let's that's not true. go
2: over that. But yeah, it's a good sign.
1: We're scraping by. Right. We're scrappy underdogs still. Exactly. But it means you know a lot of you out there are listening, getting a lot of good feedback, a lot of good questions. So that's awesome. And uh, as I understand it, we're actually going to taste some of our sponsor's beer live on the show tonight. We always. are,
2: for sure. I want to get to them, but I first want to hear what is the latest at uh, the Rare Barrel. Tell me what's going on.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, we we have a few things going on. Uh, one thing is we're doing prep for Beer Week, San Francisco Beer Week, which is coming up for those of you who don't live in the Bay Area. Um, it's going to be Friday, February 6th through Sunday, February 15th. You know, I'm never good at like, there's all these laws when it comes to like what events you can promote, like if you're going to be there, if you're not going to be there, if they're at a bar, if they're at your brewery. So I'm just going to say, check out our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, In the next week or two, we're going to be putting up a big blog post uh, on the rarebarrel.com to kind of give you guys a full rundown on all the places you could be getting rare barrel beer, but also some fun events we're going to be doing during that week. And you get this typical pitch from a lot of breweries, I'm promising... That there's going to be an awesome, outstanding list of events. You guys should definitely check it out. I'm excited about attending these events, and I'm I'm working them. So
2: I mean, how's the the supply doing? Are you worried about you know just having multiple things a day, every day that you got to provide beer for? And
1: yeah, it's tough. That's something we've been having to manage uh, for a long time in our first year of selling beer at the Rare Barrel. You know, we've kind of just gotten to the point where we can, you know, support a bunch of events like this. But, yeah, I'm I'm worried. It's going to be very busy at our tap room. Uh, we're optimistic also that we can do a couple of bottle releases. Now, those, bo- you know, sour beer refermentation in a bottle, they may or may not be ready in time. But, you know, we're, we're looking forward to being able to, you know, provide people who maybe just happen to be in town or are coming to town because of Beer Week to get some of our beer to take home. So that's pretty exciting stuff. But yeah, that's what's going on for us in the near future. Do you want to get into this beer tasting? Yeah, yeah,
2: let's do it. Did you taste this beer in front of you first off?
1: Yeah, I did taste it.
2: Yeah, well, before we pot them up, let me hear your initial thoughts.
1: All I know about it is that it's a creek, and I think it's extremely to style for creek. It's definitely got that distinct cherry aroma and flavor to it. It's got a good amount of funk to it which, you know, I think is you got to have in Creek, not just, you know, American sour beer with cherry, but Creek specifically, the body and carbonation level are spot on. So I was like, Hey, you know what this, if, if you didn't, you know, prime me on what this beer was going to be. I'd say this is a pretty two style and tasty example of Belgian Creek.
2: Yeah, I, I just want to say, bef- uh, you know, n- not to overinflate everybody's expectations, and then we'll, we'll pot him up, and it'll inevitably be a disappointment. But I popped this. Uh, there's four bottles. I popped one on uh, New Year's uh, and saved the other three for this show, and was really blown away. I mean, it's a runaway. The easily the best homebrewed sour beer I've ever had, and I'm probably in the. Twenty-five to thirty, I would say I've had twenty-five to thirty examples of homebrewed sour beer, which is is not a lot. I'll give you that. I'm sure a lot of you out there have had a whole lot more. But a, just a, a lot of people aren't necessarily brewing them, and b, I'm not. I don't have access to everyone who does, obviously. And it just has all those things that I'm always missing from homebrewed sours—just bright and not a hint of an off flavor, at least for for, for my palate. So, uh, with that intro, uh, how about you disappoint us, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> oh perfect dead air yeah <laughs> that was excellent man are you there you Matt? Could not have done anything yes better I, right
4: I am here thank mm-hmm. you for the for the um high compliments coming from you jay and you scott i thanks for having me on the show sure i um i was excited to uh to share this with you guys and get some feedback on it
1: Just, yeah it's 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 really tasting great and i mean i mean uh you know scott got into Hey, this is one of the best homebrewed sour beers I've had. But you know, I, I come at it from more of a commercial perspective. And yeah, I mean it's it's not just on par with commercial examples, it's a really great two style Belgian Creek. And I, I made the distinction between the Belgian Creek and an American sour beer with cherries because you have that funk and it's very well balanced and a lot of American sour beer makers will try to make their beers taste like Belgian sour beers, which, you know, if that's your thing, that's cool. And if you're trying to, you know, pioneer American sour beer, on the other hand, that's great, too. But what you've done with this beer here is really make a really spot on example of what I think of in my mind when I think of Belgian Creek. So it's a job well done.
2: Well, thank you. So how'd you do the job, man? Walk us through it.
4: This was three different batches of sour beer. Uh, Two of them were were actually sour reds, although they made up the uh, only 25% of the final blend. And one was a sour blonde. The way I brewed these was using three stages of fermentation, lacto up front for a few days, then pitching in a Saccharomyces and then Britannomyces to layer that funk in at the end the three batches aged for about 20 months before i blended them and then added both uh cherry juice and whole montmorency cherries
1: matt when you're talking about your your kind of three-step fermentation and you know you say you you kind of commit to lacto first uh you know i went and checked out your blog uh sourbeerblog.com and the article that popped up that i was really interested in was uh your kind of pretty comprehensive review of fast souring techniques. And, you know, you go over sour mash, adding lacto in a kettle environment, doing kettle souring, doing lacto in a primary fermentation. So I'm curious with this beer, you know, which of those processes that you outlined in your blog post did you use on this?
4: It would have been the final, the last of the three. um, Sour warting, or I... I do all the boiling steps before any bugs go in. Um, the lactobacillus goes in first for a couple days at a, at a hot temperature, but then it's cooled down and ale yeast is pitched in the fermenter. The lacto isn't killed off by a boil or, or anything. It's, it continues to survive into the final product.
1: Awesome. It's got a really good acidity. I kind of, you know, it's it's hard to describe a sour beer over the airwaves, but, uh, or the pod waves. I don't know how you describe this. <laughs> <Airwaves. but laughs> um, I
2: cling to the radio moniker. I don't podcast. Okay. Uh.
1: That's good. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the acidity, I'd say, is uh, medium to medium high, I'd say, on this beer, just to kind of frame it in people's minds. And I think that's quite an accomplishment if what your fermentation schedule Is saying to me is that you didn't use pediococcus in this. Is that correct?
4: There is no pediococcus in this. This uh, beer is actually entirely White Labs cultures. This is uh, the lactose White Labs, um, lacto del brachii. The sour reds were fermented with uh, Saccharomyces, the dry English ale strain, WLP-007, while the sour blonde was a Cal ale. And then the Bretts that I used, I believe, were um, two of the batches got Brett Lambicus and one got uh, Brett Brux, And those were all White Labs cultures.
1: Awesome. It's got a really great level of acidity. And, you know, without saying, oh, kind of overstating it, it's got a high level acidity for a beer that only has only seen lactobacillus, I think. Have you done... You know, other experiments that maybe you've uh, chronicled on your blog that do, you know, incorporate PDO or have more of a mixed fermentation? Or do you, or is this kind of oh. your standard thing to do, separate all the steps out into lacto, Saccharomyces, and then Britannomyces?
4: That has been my standard thing. Recently, I've started doing some experiments putting PDO into the mixes. Early on, a, a couple years ago, when I started doing batches using this this method i was reading a lot of other people's results online with things and it it seemed like if if sour beer went wrong on the homebrew scale it would be in the acidity level people were getting nice funk and otherwise good beers but sometimes it just never got as sour as they were hoping so i thought that by pitching in lactobacillus a little bit early before any of the yeast uh, species went in, it would give it a little bit of a competitive edge to try to build its colonies up and hopefully sour the beer more, which I think has been the, the result.
1: Yeah, I think you nailed it right there, Matt, because a lot of home brewers and and also new commercial brewers struggle with getting their beer sour enough. And I think there's kind of a lot of debate about why that happens. And, you know, I think a common misconception is that, oh, you just need to age it longer. People think that sour beers take a long time. But in my opinion, and I think it's reflected in, you know, what you're saying about your process here, is that it's sort of all about competition and access to sugars. So you either need to have early lactobacillus accessing the sugars up front or have a very hearty strain that, you know, more than likely includes pediococcus if it's going to be your souring after saccharomyces fermentation. So, I really like your approach here. Speaking of your approach, I like it. I can tell, you know, you definitely know your stuff. Everyone should be checking out your blog, sourbeerblog.com. Yes. And this being a Q&A show, you're, you know, you're sponsoring it now. So, all of tonight's questions are going to be brought to you by sourbeerblog.com. Follow Matt Whose nickname is Doctor Lambix. I didn't know if I was supposed to call you. No, his, his nickname is Matt. His name is Doctor. Oh, Lambic. that's what it was. Yeah. So I'm sorry I left out the doctor when we did the intros, Matt. My apologies. Just for we're that. tight
2: with him, so we can call him by his nickname. You know, it's it's <laughs> it's Doctor to everybody else.
1: Doctor Matt Lambick, would you like to uh, stay on for a few questions of our uh, QA yeah, show? Help I think us that'd be some. that'd be a lot of fun, and we but, can uh, get through some questions here together.
4: Sure, that'd be great. You know, Jay's a
2: commercial brewer these days, so we need, like, a home brewer's take on some of these questions. So you're going to fill that role for us, if that's cool with you.
4: That sounds good. <laughs> awesome.
2: All right, let's start with uh, Chris George, who says, uh, Greetings, after listening to the first two episodes... I oh, okay, he's blowing smoke. Thank you, George. and <laughs> Chris, all right, I have a question about blending. I have a two-year-old Flanders red brewed with rosalere that conditioned in a glass carboy for a year. Then when I had to move to a new house, I racked it into a corny, where it has been since... Uh, it has intense sourness, but it burns the throat when I sample it. Is this something I can blend away, or should I dump it also, If you were to uh, blend it, what sort of base beer would you suggest? He says he will be bottle conditioning this
1: i 'm glad you added that last part that you will be bottle conditioning it, so I hate to you know recommend that you dump a beer that you spend so much time on. You know, it seems like you have an excessive amount of acetic acid produced by your beer. You know, that on its own might not be the worst thing. There are certainly, you know, some of the best professional breweries keep beers in their stock that have high levels of acetic acid. But I think the key is to make sure it doesn't have also high levels of ethyl acetate and that it doesn't just taste like vinegar. Now, the fact that you say it burns your throat on the way down... Maybe that's a sensitivity thing or maybe it is kind of vinegary, but uh, I know Russian River keeps on some acid beer to blend in to some of their less acidic uh, sour mixes, but you got to know that that beer going in is tasting good otherwise. It's just very sour. So another concern I'd have is, you know, if this is going to continue to increase over time, I'm glad that it's in a keg because that's an environment that you can purge and get rid of oxygen, which is going to, you know, make the problem even worse. But if you have like a, a large amount of uh, acetobacter or, or acetic acid bacteria in there that's just continuing to build on all this acetic acid, I'd be a little bit worried. So maybe what I would do is take a little bit of it, blend it down a little bit, and then let that age out for two to three months. And if you can measure pH over time, that'd be a great thing to do. Or if you can just go by taste and see if that gets to a level again where it's just burning or if it stays constant and you have this nice balanced beer at the point at that point it's almost like testing out your bottle fermentation before you put it in the bottle because i don't want you to just go straight blend it with somebody else go straight in the bottle i think that's fraught with problems but i don't know matt what, what what's your take on this situation
4: I, I think you nailed it jay the only thing that came to mind is like a trick for trying to figure out exactly what would be going on in there is maybe to even take a small sample and water it down so that when you taste it it's not burning the throat but you might have a better chance of tasting what actually is the what's the blend of acids that are in there it it might bring that vinegar or ethyl acetate solvent out a little bit more and if that's the case then you know that that it's lost but if it seems watered down and it's still like a clean lactic sourness, it's just really intense, then it might be something easier to work with.
1: I think that's a great point. You know, you get involved with some of these more extreme flavors in either regular beer making or sour beer making. It gets so extreme that sometimes you miss the nuances in there. So I like that idea to blend it down a little bit we have another one, Scott? Yeah, we do.
2: I just want to put a, a little bit of a, a just even finer point on it because the creek here, Dr. Lambic's yeah. creek, has intense sourness like you were saying at the top, mm-hmm. but there's not even a hint of burning the throat. It's just really intense on the tongue, like the back part of your tongue, right? And then right. it's just gone. Well, and that like he's saying, it's the matter of which acids are in there.
1: Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, Matt, you know, he's a smart enough guy that he's building. Just like people build like their malt bill, in a sour beer you have the chance to build almost like an acid bill. So you get like amalic acid from the fruit, you get uh, acetic acid, you get lactic acid. Um, You can kind of build an acid profile just like you would layer malts for a malt bill. So is that something you considered, Matt, when you made this beer?
4: I think it's something that happens just by accident, but also it's a good thing to be considering when when you're blending beers like this. You're always going to pick up acid from sour fruits like tart cherries but the more complex that acidity is i think the the more it just has that character to it that is um makes you salivate like it's Mm -hmm. it's very satiating
1: absolutely and this beer is one of them it's something that you know it's a this beer reminds me of reading uh you know a michael jackson book where he's talking about how uh rodenbach is the most refreshing beer in the world and that's that satiating, salivating, that, that's what a sour beer can give you that is transcendent beyond what regular beer can give you. Now, maybe I'm a little biased. A little bit. but <laughs> And I'm sure Matt's the same way. But it's the reason why we love these beers. It's the reason why people are listening to this show. So that's a lot of fun.
2: Yeah, it sure is. I'm, I need another glass of Siri Doc, yeah. you're blowing my mind, man. This is really amazing stuff. Let's do one more <laughs> question here. It's uh, from Michael Phelps. And he writes in, I just got finished ripping a bong load, and I'm high, but I do <laughs> have a question for the sour I hour. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a couple of different questions. Speaking of acetobacter, let's do this one. Reading up on the Y yeast culture, de bomb, they recommend hitting the beer with oxygen during fermentation multiple times. They're claiming this adds complexity to the beer with micro-oxidation. Wouldn't this just create acetobacter, which is something we don't want, right?
1: It's right that you don't want acetobacter, but y- you don't automatically have acetobacter in all of your beers now if you have poor practices or you really don't even have to have poor practices it can just be an unfortunate circumstance acetobacter is all around us so there's a good likelihood that uh you know a lot of beers can be infected with acetobacter and in that case yeah the last thing you want to do is give it exposure to oxygen um, now, if you age a beer in a barrel, like uh, Chris George was talking, or he aged it in a carboy, but he, if he's got acetobacter, it's good that he got his beer out of the glass carboy and into a keg, because ho- and hopefully it's purged, because he's getting that away from oxygen exposure. So, I would say, you know, if you're adding a big enough pitch of this Debom uh, y yeast blend, and uh, that's that's the dominant culture and you have good technique, then you know, I don't think you're going to have acetobacter in there. And in that case, you're just giving additional oxygen to, uh, I, I'm not sure what's in it actually, but you know I'm sure there's some brett and some different lactic acid bacteria. I think you're in that way producing more acetic acid up front. My concern is producing too much ethyl acetate up front, which is another byproduct of introducing oxygen, whether you have acetobacter or not. So I'd be concerned about that. We have some uh, debaum now at the rare barrel, and we're, we're experimenting with it on a small scale. So I don't have anything really to report back on that. But uh, Matt, have you, have you tried this uh, mixed culture out?
4: I haven't had the chance to work with DeBalm. I did read uh, a response that y East put out a little bit ago that the, to the oxygenation question. And they, their intention was to produce ethyl acetate. At least in a, amounts, uh, hopefully, to sharpen up the beer, like increase the perception of acidity. But it's definitely a fine line that you have to walk with that with that chemical because too much is going to become very solventy.
1: Absolutely, I you know I, I I just saw a good description of it. At lower levels, ethyl acetate is going to kind of provide some robustness, some depth, a little perfume to your aroma. And then once you get over the threshold and in excess an excess over the threshold you're really talking about that nail polish solventy and you never knew who your drinker is going to be people are sensitive to different things so you know for us at the rare barrel we want to get rid of beer that is going to come anywhere close to people's sensitivity threshold because you know even if 10 percent of people think that our beer stinks because it smells like nail polish you know we don't want that so we don't want to come close to those types of things now that being said I'm always up for a good experiment. So I am going to try out this de Bomb and see what's going on. The last point I just wanted to make on this question was sometimes I think in sour beer, people use words like complexity and funk, and it's too big of an umbrella. And for some people, that umbrella goes over off flavors too. So complexity, funk doesn't mean off flavors it should be something that is interesting and is bringing you back to the beer not repelling you away from the beer so like matt said it's it's a fine line to walk but you know as sour beer brewers it's it's something that we need to be on top of all the time well matt i want to thank you not only for joining us but for the beer and your support of the sour hour it's really important to us and you know i I really appreciate it personally and uh thanks for sponsoring the show tonight all the questions tonight and uh coming on with us
4: Thanks for having me on the show, and I'm I'm glad to be able to sponsor it and support what you guys do. I think it's a great. I think you're doing great things, and um, my vision of the future is is great sour beer on taps all across America, and I think that this is this show is going to be one of the things that move us in that direction. Great, let's do it together.
2: Amen. And a hey, uh, in the meantime, I would like to just keep great sour beer on at my house. So please send more bottles when you got more batches ready, man.
1: This is amazing <laughs> stuff.
4: Really good. Oh, thank you. It's I appreciate that. Doctor Lambic right.
1: Science Creek. Hell yeah! All right, Doc, we'll catch up with you. Awesome. This this is a great beer that we're drinking. This no is kidding? it's quite a treat. God, it's yeah, mind blowing. I didn't know we were going to have a you know a beer tasting at the top of the show. You know, I thought I was going to have to get a beer from the bar, but no, good stuff. Yeah. And, So excited and appreciative of uh, Dr. Lambic's sponsorship. Everyone, you should seriously go check out the Sour Beer blog. Lots of great articles on there.
2: All he wants, by the way, is just readership. That's it. Yeah, just go on. He's he's not selling anything. He just really loves sour beer and wants everyone to uh, follow his blog because he's doing uh, great things in uh, sour home brewing.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's helping out a comrade. He's, he's trying to do the same things that we're doing here. And we're, we're so thankful that, uh, you know, he's come on to the team.
2: Yeah. So. Well, and you actually, I, I don't want to get too carried away because, you know, his blog might be so good and informative that people are like, well, what the hell do I need to listen mm-hmm. to those idiots on the Brewing Network for? I, I'm learning everything I need to know from uh, sour beer the sour beer blog
1: well <laughs> <So> Scott this- <laughs> I hadn't considered that so let's go a break let's let's right. get out of here on that yeah, all, right. <laughs> all right we'll come back answer more you guys questions we'll be right back this is the sour hour since the first time
3: the brewing network microphones turned on more beer was behind it more beer sponsors the programming on the BN because like you they love brewing and like the brewing network they love sharing their knowledge MoreBeer.com isn't just a website to place your next equipment or ingredient order. The best thing
0: to happen to brewers yeast in a century is from White Labs. For pro brewers and home brewers, yeast in the new Pure Pitch package powered by Flexel Technology redefines how fresh your yeast can really be. That's because your yeast is cultured, grown, and delivered all in the same Pure Pitch package. It's never been transferred and never been exposed to the environment. Pure Pitch is powered by White Labs' proprietary Flexel Container, which took six years to develop and is designed to be the best home your yeast has ever traveled in. Just cut open a pure pitch package and pitch the purest yeast possible. Learn more about pure pitch powered by FlexCell technology at whitelabs.com. And while you're there, sign up for one of the many great classes White Labs offers like yeast essentials 2.0 coming up August 22nd and 23rd or any one of their great workshops for brewers, distillers, and vendors. Pure pitch from White Labs. Six years to develop, refine, and perfect. Two seconds to open. I'm sorry.
1: Down with that! What is that? Uh, Pulled the needle off the record.
2: You know, it's uh, Quantum MCs. It's called Concentration. Is the song okay? It's a uh, hip hop from like the early two thousands.
1: Yeah, I like it. We're back. It's a Sour Hour. Talking hip hop from the two thousands. <laughs> right. <laughs> We're uh, doing our first Q&A show, and uh, had a great first segment with uh, Dr. Lambic from SourBeerBlog.com, who will be sponsoring all of our questions tonight during the show, which we're super excited about. It's it's hard to m- match the level of excitement of what how good his beer was from the first segment, but we're still excited about the sponsorship, too.
2: That's yeah, great. and I'm sure all these guys that are asking questions that we're about to get to are brewing uh, just as good of sour beer Or maybe not.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, if you're not... They're trying to. Go visit SourBeerBlog.com. That's the key.
2: Uh, Joel from Carlisle, Pennsylvania. He wrote this email. He says, I'm only partway through the first podcast, but thanks for starting it. He has a few questions, but let's do this one on bottle dregs. When using bottle dregs, how much should they be grown up in a starter before it's considered a sufficient amount to add to a five-gallon secondary?
1: Going back to an answer on a previous show, one thing I like to do with bottle dregs is actually take... Not just the dregs, but a little, maybe even an inch or two above the dregs. Because you're getting a lot of yeast and bacteria that, for whatever reason, are staying viable in, in, in suspension more than all the stuff that falls to the bottom of the bottle. Not that that's bad, but it's just, you know, I like to have the mix of both. So, I usually, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to take, you know, a couple of uh, inches above the bottle dregs as well. But um, getting back to more more into what you asked... I like to scale up at sort of like a 1 to 10 ratio. So let's say from your bottle dregs, you're going to get, I don't know, 3 ounces, 100 100 milliliters or something. You know, add that to 1 liter of wort and then just let that go for a while. So what do I mean by a while? I think for that first step, you may want to take a little bit longer. And in fact, if you are coming out of a bottle and there's not a lot of yeast and cinnamon at the bottom... You may want to even step that down a bit. So go from 100 milliliters of the bottle dregs to you know 500 ml of starter wort, basically. Low gravity, low or even no hops is ideal. And then once you see activity, that's, the, that's one of the key steps. Seeing activity and give it a smell. It's too small of a volume to do any testing on. So go by sight, go by smell, activity, and then step that up to a larger volume. That's going to be a couple liters. After that, and then now you have enough volume to do pH reading, gravity reading, and I would do that at least after two weeks. So give give it a, give it double, at least double the amount of time you start with, you know, a Saccharomyces starter or something like that. And then if it continues to smell good, taste good, the readings are good grow it up until you have you know a one to ten or one to five ratio to get to your five gallon batch and then pitch it in but you know with that five gallon batch you may want to start with a low gravity as well so that would be my advice but that's something we have addressed on a couple of the old shows i think did he say he's just on the first episode yeah so you know i keep listening and uh, a lot of the, a lot of our guests have come in and and talked about that quite a bit so thanks for listening and keep going
2: There's another part to his question, uh, which is that he got uh, four used whiskey barrels two years ago uh, from a local brewery that had used them one time for an imperial stout. He said he used two right away, but the other two, he had taped the bunghole closed to keep out dirt and dust. Do you think these dry two barrels will be unusable? Should I repurpose them for planters or something, he asks?
1: Hard to know. Uh, You're going to want to do visual inspections, smell the insides, get some water in there and swell them up. But... I, I hate to do this back-to-back on your questions, but on the last show we had with uh, Tim Clifford from Sante Adarius, I had a what I will call a soliloquy, which is a, a name of one of our new beers, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, just like a random rant about barrel prep. And I realized, you know what, we're, we're going to keep getting these questions about barrel prep, what do I do with this barrel type stuff. So I've decided what I want to do is uh, time mark, my rant from that last show, mm-hmm. but then also make it into like a, either a BN forum post, or we'll put it up on the rare barrel blog, just like our standard operating procedure on treating barrels, inspecting barrels, all that stuff. So that, you know, w- rather than go, you know, retrace our steps on that and have to repeat it over these different shows. I think what I'm going to do is just uh, do a little write-up on that. So we'll we'll promote that on social media when I get that done, but uh, that's on my to-do list for sure.
2: Let's move on to Matt from Virginia who said, this might be an overcomplication of a complex situation, but here I go. Let's say I have several sour beers to blend. Each one uh, is not individually great, but they make a harmonious final product. Does this mean that a bottle of the final product... Now has the proportionate organisms to make a more balanced beer in future fermentation.
1: Uh, yes. Next question. No, joking. <laughs> moving along. I mean, yeah, it, it's hard. It's hard to know that for sure. So you just gotta go for it. So do a test fermentation with that blend on. You know, a small amount going forward. Now, you know, I understand that can be frustrating because you're you're spending a lot of time testing something out, but. You know, what's more frustrating doing that test before doing like a five gallon batch of it or having to wait a year with a five gallon batch and then dumping it at the end. So, yeah, I think that's, you know, sort of like natural selection for beer. I mean, you're it's survival of the fittest and you're picking the best of the best yeast and bacteria and the mixes that make it go on and the ones that don't get left behind. So, yeah, I think that's you're off to a good start there.
2: Here's Kevin Kolk, who says, I'm going to skip blowing smoke. I have uh, a 10-gallon batch of sour ale made from a base wort of a Saison, uh, only lighter on the hops. I pitched a starter of WLP 500, a smack pack of Rosalere blend and dregs from a bottle of uh, Jolly Pumpkin Oro de Calabaza. It's been in the fermenter, which is a 15-gallon plastic food barrel, since July He sent this in the uh, beginning of December, so it had been about six months. Uh, He said, I tasted a bit about two weeks ago, and I'm really happy with it. I'm curious if it's still too soon to bottle or not at this point. OG was 1065. It's been at 009 for a while. He said, I plan to leave it in there for a year, but if I'm happy with the taste now, am I potentially doing a disservice by waiting six months to bottle?
1: Uh, I don't think you're necessarily doing a disservice. Uh, so I appreciate you giving us all those particulars there. What I would say is uh, with sour beers, we look for not just the finishing gravity, but finishing gravity stable over two or three months. So I might have mentioned this before, but you know, you're know, you at a, a regular commercial brewery and you're looking for your terminal gravity. You're like, oh, okay, it's you know, this is where it usually finishes. And then you come in the next day, test it again. If it's the same thing, maybe you keg it and bottle it right then or you know if it's been finicky in the past maybe you'll wait a third day to confirm that it's at that same gravity you know this is how a lot of pro brewers advance their beer that's how they know fermentation is done other than you know what you were saying is that you know oh it tastes good and it seems like it's done so what i would recommend is this is from december right yes so you know we're nearing the end of january
2: about almost two months since you wrote that Almost two months. Uh, month and month and a half. Oh, month early. Three okay. So it was like December nine.
1: So, um, you know, hopefully, you know, maybe, took, maybe you took maybe took a reading in between now and then. I would take a reading now and see if it's still point oh oh nine, and just go from there. If that if it's stable over two or three months, then I think you're okay to go ahead and package it. Otherwise, you know, unless you're doing anything weird like blending in a new beer at the time of packaging, you know, you're just looking for stability over a longer course of time when you're talking about packaging of a sour beer. Now, caveat, there's plenty of sour beer brewers out there who would say, no way, that gravity is way too high to package a sour beer. Oh, 09, because, too high? Yeah. What are you looking for? Well, it depends who you ask. So I know sour beer brewers who have packaged beer at four Play-Doh, which, let's see, what is that? 1.016, so not quite double what this guy's talking about, but almost there. And then other pro-sour brewers were just like, I will not bottle this unless it's zero. So really? It's kind of just what your yeast and bacteria strains are up to. The sucky part is, and this is not a satisfying answer, it comes with experience. And it's one of the things that just honestly kept me up at nights before opening the Rare Barrel is I was worried about this problem more than any other. Is just, is my beer going to ferment to zero if I put it in the barrel? So oh. the first batches that we released at the Rare Barrel we didn't wait that two or three months. I'm saying that that's a good idea from experience. What we did is we waited six extra months and just made absolutely certain that that gravity was not going anywhere. Once we saw two months in a row of the same gravity, we actually did small scale bottle conditioning tests. So this was not only to try out potential yeast strains of what we were going to use for our bottle conditioning, but it was also to make sure that we weren't creating bottle bombs. So, uh, our first beer we ever released is called Excuse Me. It's golden sour with Brett and lacto, uh, primary fermentation with Brett lacto. So we did you know, five different experiments. One, we just put that beer into a bottle, no additional uh, sugar or yeast. The other was uh, 001. The other was a wine yeast. Then there was a, the cast conditioning dried yeast. And then we did one with the Brett Dre that we used for the primary fermentation, a new dose of that. And we left those for a long time. We bottled enough bottles so that we could taste them basically once a month, one from each different yeast strain. We'd sit down, we'd talk about, hey, is this getting carbonated? Which yeast strain is giving the base beer, the barrel beer, the, its best foot forward? And we just, we just experimented, which is always a good way to go. But I understand that you may not have that. From experience, what I would say is get a consistent gravity for two to three months, and then try not to introduce some crazy new Brett strain that may attenuate the beer down to zero when it's in the bottle. That's one of the toughest questions homebrewers face if they're trying to bottle, condition a sour beer. It's, it's scary stuff. I mean, they also don't have, I don't know if they have the same access to like the really high quality dense glassware that pro brewers have. I think I might've seen a similar bottle to what we use on the More Beer website. It's like a 375 ml Capable Belgian style That might be Kind of what we use But I would just Make absolutely certain You have the strongest Bottle possible for that Got a lot more Questions to go to But uh, I think it's I think it's break time are I see good? my beer Running low
2: Oh actually Let's let's do another one Vivo said oh, take okay. a break But now she says we're good So let's, well, let's get through Vivo's
1: the boss So are, are you sure Are you certain Yeah okay. Two thumbs
2: up this time Wow
1: She says we can keep going Mo- Mom says we can stay out <laughs>
2: Thanks mom <laughs> <laughs> Alright here's Daniel what did you say, Biva? Never say that? Never oh. call me mom ever okay. again. All right. Sorry, Biva. Mama. Here's Daniel. He says, a question, is there a such thing as decanting off the attenuating yeast or bacteria from a Brett or mixed bret uh, and bacteria starter? So his explanation is, uh, with a WLP-001 starter or any yeast like it, I've been under the impression that if I don't cold crash or wait a long uh, time before decanting, the attenuating yeast left in suspension can be poured off then pitching this starter would uh, lead to... Man, spell I, much? I'm already confused. Well, his, his grammar is kind of weird. So did the first part of it make sense? Decanting no. off the attenuating yeast bacteria from a brett. So in a, a starter,
1: you, you start a starter, and then a lot of yeast falls to the bottom, and then there's some at the very top in suspension. There's a whole bunch in between. But I think what he's talking about is decanting. Once that whole starter process is done, every, most... Yeast drops to the bottom, and he's talking about decanting the starter beer off of the yeast cake at the bottom.
2: Ah, okay, yeah, I think that is what he means.
1: And so he's talking about doing that with Saccharomyces, and then is he saying, do you do the same thing with sour beer? Yeah,
2: when I think of brett and bacteria starters, I want to think that there is no particular attenuating bugs that would eat sugar better than another that may have flocked out earlier.
1: Say that one more time.
2: It's <laughs> <laughs> elegant. If it doesn't make sense, it doesn't make sense. When I think of uh, Brett and B- Brett and bacteria starters, yeah. I want to think that there is no particular attenuating bugs that would eat sugar better than any other that may have flocked out earlier.
1: Okay, so I think what he's saying is uh, there's no difference between the flocculent yeast and bacteria and the non-flocculent yeast and bacteria. But I would say no, there is. Um, just like a regular yeast, the wild yeast that stay in suspension those are the ones that are going to attenuate the beer more. So if you have a Brett that flocks out really early, that could not only be a dead cell, but it could be a cell that just is not up to the task of, you know, continuing on your sour beer fermentations. So I would definitely try and use the same practices that, you know, you'd read in the yeast book from Jamil. Maintain those same practices. The one thing I'll say about Brett is it's a terrible flocculator. So I don't see a big problem with, you know, carrying over cells that are at the bottom of any type of starter or fermentation, they're going to be just fine. I mean, at the Rare Barrel, we have a really hard time building a full cone from one of our conical fermenters full of, you know, very dense cells of Britannomyces. We're we're pitching all we can, and then sometimes a good amount of beer if we're doing a cone-to-cone pitch. So I'd say, no, there's no difference, but also if you're looking to decant that starter beer off... It is going to take a lot longer. So, you know, the, the decanting method is just one suggested method. If you keep your volume low, then it's not going to make a, a huge impact on your finished beer. But I can understand what this guy, I think he's saying, is, you know, you don't want to carry that over to your regular fermentation. Who knows? I hope I'm <laughs> <laughs> I so it. And you know what? On that point, it's a lot better if you guys call in. So call us at 888 beer because then I can ask you questions back. Uh, give us a call and, uh, maybe we'll get to some of those in the next segment.
2: Maybe. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I could be putting the, uh, the emphasis on the wrong word Slabble. and I don't, I don't, exactly. I don't know, you know, what I'm asking. So yeah, when you, when you ask a question yourself, it can be uh, answered more effectively. Let's do one more before the break. Okay. Okay.
1: Is that okay, Bevo? You, yes. Okay. Yes. Or so just said... one
2: thumb up. She's unsure.
1: Well, let me be perfectly honest. I wasn't really listening. So what? I'm just going to go ahead and go with whatever you guys are saying.
2: Who are you talking Not to, to Bevo, back there? I know.
1: My good friend, Pushy Jack. Ah, announcer oh, man's here okay.
2: This one's from uh, from John Osakakaka. He says he loves the show, and he wants to know, how would one approach brewing a Flanders Red Brown more like the, the Duchess or a Rodenbach grain crew? He said he really likes the balance of sweet and tart uh, of those beers compared to many other drier sour beer styles, which I know, Jay, you and I uh, lean towards. Yeah. Uh, but he says he's unclear how to retain that while still creating a shelf-stable bottle and without the use of artificial sugars. Um, he said he realizes that blending is involved. My understanding is that Duchess is pasteurized, uh, is that the only way to hold off some of that sweetness? Uh, he's in uh, New Zealand, this guy, and he's paying a small fortune for these beers, and they're they're hard to find, so he wants to brew some of
1: his own. You know, while, while we have different tastes in sour beer, I, I respect your rundown right there. That was an excellent setup, and you're right about uh, all those methods. And I guess what you're asking me is, you know, is there a way that you didn't list that you could, you know, keep some residual sweetness in your sour beer? And honestly, what I would say is uh, just keg it blend it with a sweeter beer and then keg it and then drink it, keep it cold so it doesn't continue to ferment. you know with, without more advanced methods, I don't see a way to keep that residual sugar intact as much because those beers do have a, a, a quite a bit of sweetness. You can, you know, make a beer like uh, Dr. Lambic did where you're layering different acids and adding fruit, and that has an increased perceptual sweetness, but I don't think that's actually, like, that sweet of a beer, so... Did you, did you find it to be dry? It was balanced for a beer that has some character malts to it. It is a red. At least part of it was a red. And then had all that cherry juice juice slash uh, whole cherries. I think it was balanced. So in, a, in that style... For that style, maybe it was on the drier side, which I like. It makes it more drinkable. But yeah, without pasteurizing, I, I just keep it cold and and drink it from keg, and and that that should be fun.
2: You got a suggestion for what uh, what sweet beer he should blend it with?
1: You can just match uh, whatever you're using for your sour beer base. So you so basically you brew the you know a dutch's clone as a sour beer, and then it gets too dry for you, and then you blend it with the equivalent, but fermented with, you know, OO1 or, you know, with a high mash time per even better OO2, um, which will leave a lot more residual sugar. The trick there is you will still want that acidity in there. Mm. So you're blending it down with beer that doesn't have acidity. You can cheat and use lactic acid or you can produce a very sour, sour beer. And in that case I do a hundred percent fermentation with Brett and PDO and let PDO go to town on all that available sugar. That's going to create a lot more acid than lactobacillus. So that'd be my suggestion. But he put me in a tough spot there, and I hope that answer is uh, satisfactory. But great question and and great setup. He really knows what he's talking about.
2: Write us back uh, and let us know if you do take Jay's advice and and what happens.
1: And again, call us. Yes. So we can ask you questions back. 888 A41 beer and uh, hopefully we'll get some sour beer questions after the break. All right. This is the Sour Hour on the Brewing Network. (laughs) Hey, my Bruin brothers and sisters, this is Jamel Zanisha, and I want to tell you about Heretic Evil Twin. You might be familiar with my homebrew recipe, which uses massive late hopping to create a balance between the malty sweet and the hoppy bitter, along with an outrageous malt and hop character. I wanted a beer with the same bold hop and malt character, so we played around with the homebrew recipe until we were able to make a great commercial version, too. We've created a beer rich in malt character, full of caramel, toast, biscuit, and an ever-so-subtle roast note. On top of that, we piled in an insane amount of citra and Columbus hops at the end of the boil, as well as in dry hopping. This damn-the-cost approach to hopping gives Heretic's evil twin... A great blast of citrus and tropical fruit that can't be matched by any other hop. The result is a bold, malty, hoppy, but easy-drinking beer. This is our top seller, our flagship beer, and I couldn't be prouder of it. Cheers. To find Heretic Beers near you, click on Find
3: Some at hereticbrewing.com.
5: friend well, I'm left you to listen I hear you calling his name I hear the stutter of ignition I can
0: hear you whisper as I crept by your door so you bounce not a joker
1: getting so avant-garde with all your music selections coming <laughs> no. in out of break
2: well you know i've got all these things i've been waiting to uh you know play over there and of course justin is like uh, if it doesn't contain a hard rock guitar i'm not interested yeah and so now i finally have a, a show to play some of this stuff on.
1: well our intro you know that fits in with the justin theme but yeah coming in out a break you're cool. you're the king of that
2: thank you well this is uh i mean and it's uh, apropos this is a uh, machine gun funk by uh notorious pig is
1: Ready it to die. apropos or apropos of nothing Another rare barrel beer. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I had to get that in. <laughs> this is a sour hour. Uh, my name is Jay Goodwin. I'm from the Rare Barrel. In case you didn't know that, founder if you've been listening from the beginning.
2: Co-founder. Does Alex get a pissed if you just say founder, or does he insist you put the co in front of it?
1: I don't know. I usually just don't say my title. Mm. You know, doesn't doesn't really matter. Order. I make I make the beer. Actually, no, I don't even make the beer anymore. I, great, your staff. your lackeys make it. Great staff who listen to me and they listen to the show. They're doing the beer making now, so it's a great gig.
2: You know, I wonder, there's a Mike from Berkeley on on uh, two. Is he one of your brewers?
1: Oh, Is that yeah. him?
2: Oh, really? Okay, because he Well, a, actually, no, he's from he Oakland, so I don't know oh. if he's
1: calling in. I, I joked. I, t- I told him to call in. What was going to have him ask about? I can't remember.
2: All right. Well, hang, <laughs> hang on, Mike. We're going to talk first to Stacy. Yeah, Stacy's yes. in Hello? Springfield, Missouri. Yes, sir.
1: Yes. You ready for my question? Go ahead. Yeah, shoot, Stacy.
6: I have a uh, 100% uh, kettle soured beer I did with 100% brett. And my question was, I didn't really get enough tartness out of the beer that I liked. Um, I was thinking of repitching some lacto into it, and I was wondering if that was possible during bottling, or if that would cause problems, or if I should just add it now to the fermenter, um, let it go a while, or if you had any recommendations on getting a little more tartness out of that.
1: Yeah, great beer. question, Stacy. Uh, so, getting back to our uh, our talk with uh, Matt from Sour Beer Blog earlier, we kind of got to think about it in two ways. You either add lacto when there's tons of access to fermentable sugars like you did in the kettle sour but if you do it after a primary fermentation whether it's with brett or saccharomyces you really need something a lot more aggressive so what I would do is try and get some PDO in there but uh, Stacy tell me this how much uh, how much residual sugar is left in the beer do you know?
6: Not much it's, it's down to uh, I don't think in play it's down to 10, 10 right now Okay. So it's pretty much about finished.
1: There could be a little bit. What, uh, did you say what there's strain of bread? Yeah. What strain of bread you're it was using?
6: It was Lambicus from Y
1: Yeast. Okay. Yeah. So 1010. 10. I'd say there's a little bit of fermentation left to go based on my, uh, experience with that bread strain. Uh, ours usually finish at, and I'm going to, I'm going to match you in my challenge to convert back. So we do Play Doh. It's like 1.5 Play is where we finish with that usually. So that's, Ten oh six, I think. So you know, I think that I could keep going. But what I may do if you do, you like the flavor of this beer right now? It's just lacking tartness.
6: Yeah, it's a. Uh, I like it. Um, it. It's an okay flavor. I wouldn't mind letting it go longer. I mean, I would be, be objected to adding video to it and just kind of let it go. I'm not in love with it, so I mean, if that's the way you think I should go, I do it.
1: Yeah, I mean it's going to delay any packaging for a while. But what I would do is add some PDO and then maybe start brewing your your next sour beer and get some PDO in there a little bit earlier in the in the fermentation, just to kind of have that as a backup for a possible blending option. But that's that's the way I would go, and hopefully it works out. Cool, well,
2: I appreciate it. Thanks for calling, awesome.
1: Stacy. And then just one one thing before we get to the next question. Yeah, I just want to refer Stacy and anyone else who's doing some kettle souring to sour beer blog. I said this in one of the segments before, but great article on fast souring with lactobacillus. So definitely check that out. And just another reminder, all of the questions on the, show, on the show tonight brought to you by Sour Beer Blog. So you know, definitely go check it out.
2: Hey, uh, Mike, are you uh, one of Jay's brewers? I am indeed. Uh-huh. He's got
1: some questions for the master. Wait, he can't. Con- no, you are not getting paid overtime for this, <laughs> just for the record. He, he can't. Cor- All right, never he, mind, then. He can't. <laughs> see yeah, see you tomorrow. He can't <laughs>
2: corner you in the brewery and ask you in person. He's got to call your radio. No, call actually, your we show. have a
1: really early day tomorrow, so I don't know why you're still yeah. awake. I'm going to go to bed. You know, right when I get home, <laughs> so. get some sleep, man.
2: I'm actually in
7: bed. No, I'm in bed
1: right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What's up, Mike?
7: I had a question. Um, So, you know, I've heard uh, the rare barrel that you guys use barrels for the slow induction of oxygen, maybe helping Brett clean up some of the off layers that could be created during fermentation or aging. Um, As a home brewer, fermenting or aging in a glass carboy, it's kind of hard to emulate that. So I kind of had a crazy idea. What do you, what about like using like a a hardwood, you know, like like an oak cork or stopper bung? Is that ridiculous?
2: Uh, well, I want to point out real quick that he said uh, "you guys" instead of "we" when referring to the rare barrel. So, are you are you are you new, Mike? <laughs> He's
1: role playing or something. I don't know what's going on.
7: No, I'm yeah. I'm the I'm a model, so I don't really, you know. <laughs> <I see.
1: laughs> well, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't think that's ridiculous. I mean, it's there's precedent for it in the book uh, Wild Brews by Jeff Sparrow. He talks, or he at least references someone else's article i think the guy's name is uh raj opta i don't know if i'm pronouncing that right but anyway he kind of he discovers that i think he uses like a, a leg of like a wooden chair and it's like a certain diameter it'll fit in your glass carboy and he says that it's the same introduction the same rate of introduction to oxygen as either a standard oak barrel or a a punch-in size, which maybe is more typical in Lambic brewers. But, yeah, so it's not unprecedented. I just don't even know how to begin to start doing that, you know, plugging up the, you know, top hole on a carboy. i I'd just be worried about that creating a seal or some fermentation cone getting in there and then your glass carboy pressurizing and then exploding. So, you know, any technique you're going to try out, I think the first concern always has to be safety. And that's what we teach our employees at the Rare Barrel, Mike.
7: (laughs) That's a great answer. Also, uh, kind of a second part, if I can, if I can ask another question, is that all right? Yeah. So you talked about, with Tim Clifford from Sante, about getting the barrel, and he mentioned something about, oh, you know, he gives people a taste of his beer, and he says, well, you're not getting the barrel. I'm not getting the barrel, and he said, well, you kind of are, but you guys were about to elaborate on it, and I think something happened, but do you remember, do you guys recall that at all? Yeah, I
1: do remember that. We drank more of his beer. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Anything else?
2: (laughs) And I (laughs) I do remember him saying that, and I remember being kind of surprised by it. I mean, you're barrel aging, and you're purposely not wanting people to get barrel character. That just struck me as odd.
1: Well, you know, not to speak for Tim, but h- how I interpret that is, you know, the barrel does influence the flavor of the beer. Like uh, Mike was saying earlier about uh, micro oxygenation over time, that'll really influence, uh, you know, the long secondary fermentation of a sour beer. But also, it doesn't just have to be, oh, you know, you taste oak in this beer or you taste fill in the blank wine that used to be in this barrel. There are very subtle characters that. You know, occur at below threshold or maybe even above flavor threshold that you just don't perceive that add to flavor, uh, mouthfeel, and body of the beer that really does change it. Now, if that is that what Tim was talking about, you know, maybe I think a lot of his sour beers they get a, a distinct house character from their water and the the fermentation uh, yeast and bacteria that he's using. But I'm pretty sure that's what he's talking about when he's talking about a barrel character drawn from his barrels but that could also be just the overarching theme of brewers being a lot more extreme these days and they have to hit you over the head with you know whatever ingredient is in their beer if they put it on the label of the beer now for us at the rare barrel you know we don't really subscribe to that we think you know subtlety is not a bad word and complexity comes out of subtlety because you know if you if you get a new flavor on your 10th sip and you're still coming back for more on that beer, then that's a success in our book. Hey,
2: Mike, uh, yeah. who who informed you that you got the rare barrel job when you applied? Uh, I believe it was Jay. Yeah, was it like a phone call or an email?
7: Yeah, no, yeah, it was an email. It was a very official. I think there was an exclamation point in there, even. What was your reaction? Uh, you know, I, I just kind of nodded. I, I pretty much knew I had it in the bag, you know. <laughs>
2: Take yeah. it or leave it.
7: Yeah.
1: He started playing his trumpet. Yeah.
2: <laughs> All, right. <Yeah. laughs> All right, you got an early morning. So we're going to do a little lightning round of uh, questions here. All right. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for calling, Mike. (laughs) All right. Let's start with Josh Zimmer. He said, "Uh, I just tasted a couple of sours that were the first sours I brewed two years ago. They both had a, a slick, oily mouthfeel to them, but it was a lot more pronounced in the first than the second. I know it's a flaw in sours, but I'm not sure what causes it.
1: Well, I'll dispute that it's a flaw because it may just be a sick beer. Uh, Pediococcus, Some strains of Pedia will produce complex, long chains of carbohydrates, which is the the ropiness that you've heard about maybe in sour beer making. And if that's the case, and you have Brett in the beer, it's going to clean up over time. And since it's lightning round, I'll leave it at that. Here's
2: Dave, who says uh, kudos, et cetera. Uh, Jay keeps emphasizing to avoid plastic buckets. Don't trust the seal. Uh, Use glass carboys. What about the better bottle or equivalent carboys? Many of us have switched over for safety reasons and I'm hoping they are adequate. I know the plastic is less permeable and I think the seal at the neck is close to a glass seal, but I'm not sure.
1: Pretty much exactly what you, you, you just said is the extent of my knowledge when it comes to better bottles. So, you know, the proof's in the pudding. If the beer tastes good, keep doing it.
2: This is Daniel. Uh, He says, hey, thanks for the show. To oxygenate or not to oxygenate regarding primary fermentation with brett, pedio, and lacto, uh, a lighter level of oxidation—I'm sorry, oxygenation may stress the yeast to give more character versus higher oxygen levels for a clean profile. Your thoughts on this, please?
1: Yeah, that's a a really good question. lower oxygen levels, I'm not sure stressing the yeast will, you know, improve the Brett character. That's kind of a common thing. I'm not sure I'm buying as much into that as as much as I used to. Um But one thing, if you discourage yeast growth in a mixed culture fermentation, mixed culture being Brett and lacto or Brett Lactopedio, then you're going to increase the acidity of the beer because yeast growth rates are going to be outcompeted by lactopedio growth rates. And when it comes to Oxygenating Brett lacto PDO beers. We usually don't do it at all at the rare barrel. We try and keep PDO away from oxygen at all times. That is a very sluggish fermentation, but what we're usually looking for is a lot of acidity out of that. So they go hand in hand.
2: He's got a follow up. He says If I add fresh wort to a yeast cake of Brett lacto and PDO, uh, can I assume that all viable organisms are active after three days with an active fermentation? As to say, if I siphoned uh, all of the fermenting beer out, would I have all the organisms in the beer that were in the yeast cake?
1: Uh, I think I understand that question, and I believe the answer would be yes. <laughs> That's the best I can do on that.
2: All right. Here's uh, Miles who says, uh, what up, fellas? Insert flowery shit here about how you're the best. Cool. Uh, what's the best way to develop a unique mixed culture to use as a house strain? Just keep adding dregs uh, of good sours to a starter?
1: Yeah, just dump dregs of the beers that you like into your carboy and grow them up with wort um you can check on uh episode one guests michael Tonsmeyer's uh blog he's got a whole list of you know which commercial beers uh have viable strains meaning you know there's no conflicting uh bottle conditioning yeast in there um and i'd, I'd go off that list pick a few that you like and then start them up
2: so here's a question about kettle souring. which you're not a are you not a fan or you don't do it Re- remind me
1: I'm very interested in it, and I think I've been inspired lately about people who do it but do it well. I think it's mostly not done well. And uh, Chris Johnson from Green Greenbend, she yes. was on the show two shows ago, mm-hmm. which was show four, Scott. By the way,
2: I'm, we're, we're looking this <laughs> up after the show. I haven't had time in the break.
1: And then uh, you know, Dr. Lambic, who's on tonight's show from Sarah Beer Blog, he's got great. They both have great info on quick souring or kettle souring techniques. So I'm a fan. I just think it's done poorly a lot. So I'm. I'm an even bigger fan of Dr. Lambic and what Chris is doing at Green Bench. I think people should listen to these guys when it comes to that.
2: Okay. So there's a question about pH and stuff as it pertains to kettle souring. So he loves the show, et cetera. So he, he wants a bit of info on a Berliner Weisse. He says he's wanting to know with kettle souring, what is a good pH recommendation after adding the lacto and uh, will the low pH have a detrimental effect on the yeast pitch?
1: pH recommendation. Mm-hmm. It's all to taste. I mean, you can I, if you actually if you go back and listen to Chris, I believe he says his ranges for his different beers. Um, and I think more, the Berliner goes was more in like the three six three seven three eight range, and then the more uh, aggressive sour beers were in the like three two three 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 four range. And is that going to hurt the yeast? Oh yeah, that's definitely going to hurt the yeast. Um, it's not a. I would not try to repitch that yeast, but uh, you will have a full complete fermentation if you use a strain that is pH tolerant. A lot of Saison strains, some Belgian strains. 001, I've actually found to be pretty uh, pH tolerant, but like I said, you can't repitch it.
2: All right, let's move on to Cole, who says hi, big fan of the show, and I'm in the Founders Club at the Rare Barrel. Thank you, Cole. Rad. Uh, his question is about blending on a commercial scale. So if you have a beer in mind and a multitude of barrels to blend for it, do you combine similar barrels and blend from that, or do you blend from individual barrels? It seems the latter option would be overly complicated and leave you with several partially empty barrels.
1: Uh, yeah, we don't blend volumes within a barrel. So we don't blend a beer and then get left, left with you know, a partial barrel. I agree that that does seem overly complicated. Um, yeah, we try to group barrels that have similar flavors, and then kind of represent them in a larger blend. We were just doing this today with a blend of three golden sours, and it, it's a challenge. You know, our basic procedure is first, you know, identify all all the beers that might go into a blend, um, eliminate the off flavor beers, and by off flavor, I mean okay, these could be beer barrels that we're going to dump eventually because. There's no going back from these off flavors. And then there's barrels that just need more time. Maybe there's a little bit of sulfur in the aroma. Maybe there's a little bit of diacetyl that needs to clean up. Those barrels, more often than not, end up being just fine. So we'll keep those around, but they won't go in the blend that we're about to package.
2: All right, and I just want to remind everybody that uh, you can uh, send in your questions throughout the week, anytime, to uh, myself, Scott, at thebrewingnetwork. dot com, and uh, they will hopefully get asked uh, soon. But you know, you might have to wait for another Q and A show because it's hard to get through these sometimes with some of the uh, awesome guests we have coming up. Yeah, I think
1: I really need it. We need a night where we gear up and do a a back to back, maybe. Yeah. Do like a a guested show? Is that a word, guested? Yeah, and it's a radio term. Mm -hmm. And uh, not a podcast term. uh, No. No, not over the pod waves. <laughs> um, and then uh, just do a Q&A show after that.
2: Yes, we do. Let's do, do you want to do one more? Yeah, one let's more. do it. Here's Mark Graves. He said, uh, what are your thoughts on mash temperature for wild ales? Uh, most often I hear locally that a higher mash temperature is key. Is that true for certain bacteria or wild yeasts and certain applications, or is there some myth to the thought that higher is better?
1: I'm really glad you asked this question, because I was just talking about this with uh, our uh, second caller, Mike, a couple days ago. Mm. My philosophy, and I'd love to get you know all your opinions on this, is that basically the, the old adage is you want a high mash temp for sour beer. And basically what you're trying to do is, I like to think about it like this. With a typical sour beer fermentation, you're doing a Saccharomyces primary fermentation, and then in some combination, adding your wild yeast and bacteria in a secondary fermentation. So I imagine it like if you're building in these sugars that the Saccharomyces are, are going to skip. It's kind of like you go to a buffet and they have, you know, the soups and the salads out front. They try to get you to, this is how I remember like Fresh Choice, which is like the local <laughs> uh, like buffet place where I, where I grew up. They had all the soups and salads first. And I was always like, mm-hmm. you'd bring your tray through and my whole tray would be empty. And then they charge you for the tray and then you can get whatever you want. Right. And I would be Saccharomyces because I'm skipping all that green stuff. And I'm just getting to the ice cream and pizza. Well, there was bacon bits. Yeah, but there was actual bacon after the the salad bar. So that's what I was trying to get to. So that's the Saccharomyces. They're trying to get to the easiest to eat stuff, the stuff that they're going to eat right away and process. What you're trying to do is get complex carbohydrates you know, that they're going to skip and it's going to be left over for your secondary fermentation. So that's kind of the old way of doing things. If you're going to do it, not the old way. It's just the classic way. So... That's fine if that's what you're going to do. It's a great way to bring carbohydrates post-saccharomyces fermentation for your brett and bacteria. Now, what we do at the Rare Barrel is we do a lot of uh, primary fermentation with brett and lacto and PDO. So my thought is, why are we going to make it hard for them to eat the sugar that they want? We want them to produce acidity. We want them to ferment the sugar. Why have a high mash time? So I think if you're making those Sugars available to the things to, for the things you want to eat, just give it to them on a platter right away. So that's my thought on that. But you know, I'm I'm up for a debate on that. If anyone has a different opinion, I'm I'd love to know what it is. But that's kind of my theory on that.
2: Let's uh, have a, d- a debate over a plate of food at Fresh Choice. Now I'm all
1: feeling uh, some choice. bacon
2: bits and pizza.
1: I'm all about my uh, <laughs> my sour beer analogies. That one might have gone off the rails. I, don't know. <laughs> I liked it.
2: <laughs> I thought it was good. All right, we are plumb out of time.
1: Well, thanks to all the listeners for uh, tuning in, calling in, emailing in. Let's You know, don't let this discourage you from sending in questions that, you know, we couldn't get to yours this week. Send them in. We'll do a, a back-to-back show after a guested show, radio term. Uh, but, yeah, thanks to uh, Dr. Lambic and Sour Beer Blog for being on the show, sending great beer, and sponsoring the show, especially... Um, and we'll be back next time. I, I'm not sure if we're totally confirmed for our guests, but we've got some pretty cool guests on the yeah, horizon. You, so. you, you
2: ran down the list of uh, not completely sure, but probably coming. And it's, uh, boy, it's like a, a beer all-star team.
1: Pretty much. 1980s like so, Oilers. You guys should uh, stay tuned in. So uh, thanks to uh, Bevo, thanks to Scott, and thanks to you guys for listening tonight. We'll see you next time. It's been the Sour Hour on the Brewing Network.